a wonder of wonders that you have redeemed us. We who are in ourselves guilty of rebellion against the king of the universe, high-handed sin against the God who has made all things and revealed your glory to us. And yet, we stand, those of us who are in Christ, not condemned, but without condemnation, we stand free. We stand redeemed because, Christ, you stood in our place. You drank the cups of just wrath for our sin that we would not have to. You provided propitiation, a complete satisfaction and wrath-averting death for us so that we can sing these songs so that we can have the hope that you've given to us, so that we can have a future that is secured in you. Thank you, our God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. May it ever have its effect in us to make us more in love with our Savior and more faithful to him. To that end, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well... We're going to uh, take this week and the next uh, couple of weeks, actually this week and next week, and we're going to consider a topic that is no doubt uh, a topic often of conversation, not only among us here, but uh, with your neighbors and wherever, and that is the issue of vaccines and the Christian response to how we relate to one another in these interesting and confusing times. This is uh, certainly an interesting time for us in our nation. Uh, we're living through events and experiences that uh, many of us have, well, none of us actually have ever lived through before. We have many factors that contribute to that, but certainly the unrest and the kind of purveying uh, change that happens at a rapid rate is uh, new to us. But while it might be unique to our experience as Americans, it certainly isn't unique to the history of the world, and it certainly isn't unique to the church. Uh, God's people have uh, experienced unrest and unusual circumstances that seem to come upon them with rapidity and uh, uh, an unexpectedness that um, is unique to their time, but again, not unique to uh, the history of man. As we were going, went through Ecclesiastes, we are well familiar with that refrain, there is nothing new under the sun, and indeed there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever we've seen has been before. It comes in a different guise, a different package, but there is indeed nothing new under the sun. For us, of course, the big topic of, uh, or the big uh, point of discussion under that uh, is that with COVID and the new conditions that came to us a little over a year ago, I guess now, and the, the kind of discussions and changes that have happened both in our cult culture, in our politics, and the church doesn't escape those things. We live in the midst of the world, in the midst of our culture, and we in some way are affected by that. And it's been really amazing to look back and see uh, not only the effect that has had on our culture, but the ways that the church has responded, both positively and negatively, both in ways that glorify God and in ways that do not glorify God, and not only with COVID and those kind of matters, which we'll discuss this week and next week, but also, of course, with critical theory and social justice and all of those kind of issues that we have addressed in the past. You can look that up if you're interested in it. 
But even with the issue of COVID and even with the issue of vaccines and even with the strong positions that people take, both with that, with the whole idea of mandates, with constitution, constitutional integrity and face mask and all of those kind of issues, there really is nothing new under the sun. I sent an article out uh, to, I think pretty everybody got it, it was on an email. Uh, that was a very interesting article, and it, it essentially looked back in time into the 1700s and took a snapshot of how some of the same issues that we're addressing today were, in fact, issues that the church was addressing back then. I'm obviously not going to read the whole thing, but just to remind you of it, it was the Boston smallpox epidemic of 1721 in which many people died. Uh, the article says that there were 844 lives lost before it came to the end. But in the midst of this, the church uh, had a central role. And part of one of those roles was that there was an inoculation that was presented as a means of combating this issue of smallpox. And you could think that was a universally good thing, but it wasn't or seen that way by all. And the church itself had conflict and people took very strong lines. They took very strong positions. One even said this, and I read from the article, uh, the elder Mather sought to discredit the death of an inoculation patient and argued that inoculation was a way of keeping the sixth commandment while equating you shall not murder to get inoculated. He re resorted to using shame and attacking the reputation of those who opposed inoculation. He caricatured those who were fierce enemies of inoculation as, quote, children of the wicked one. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like it could be written last week within the, the culture of the church and with our own culture wars that are going on. He goes on to say in this article, multiple pastors preached against it, such as William Douglas, who condemned those who received inoculations as being guilty of a sinful distrust in God. Although he would later, the article says, change his mind. Another pastor, William Cooper, wrote a pastoral letter entitled, A Reply to the Objections Made Against Taking the Smallpox in Way of Inoculation from Principles of Conscience. That's, that's uh, the old writers for you. There was their title. He argued for freedom of conscience in choosing or refusing the inoculation. And as many of you know, that, that great figure through church history, Jonathan Edwards, which was so much influential in shaping much of our culture even today, died by taking the inoculation. He believed that it would be safe. He believed that it was something that was good for love of the neighbor and himself and his family, and yet he had complications and he had died not soon after taking the presidency of a prestigious university. And his daughter Esther actually followed in his steps, took the inoculation, and she ended up dying as well, but they did so in faith. And again, this merely illustrates, and we'll come back to this more next week, but it merely illustrates the kind of strong positions that people can take on the issues of our day. As a matter of fact, I myself have been in discussions and received emails that have essentially said to, have, to wear a face mask or to take a vaccine can have no other explanation but living in fear, distrust of God, and cowardly refusal to confront the government. That's a pretty big statement. But that is, that's what's said. I've been in conversations where people sit under ministries where the pastors say, you are living in sin and need to repent if you have taken the vaccine. It's out there. It's happening. 
The point is, is that we're not so far removed from those kind of things as we think, and we're not living in such a unique time or so unique as we think. These are issues that face God's people. These are issues that face, uh, that God's people have to face within the culture and various decisions and so forth. And so that's what I want to address, and I'm going to address it this way. I wanted to do it all in one week, but as you know, that really goes as planned. So we're going to do it in two weeks. And this week, and we're going to look at it under two very broad points. The first is this, confusion in light of COVID mandates. Confusion in light of COVID mandates. And secondly, charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. And the main text that we're going to introduce this morning, but look at in more detail next week, is Romans chapter 14. And so this morning, I'm, my intent is first to, to simply lay out some of the confusing situation. I'm not going to hit on everything. It's certainly not going to be exhaustive. Nor is my intent to take a position or to win you over to a certain position. It is merely to lay out the issues that we are facing in, in a general kind of way. And I would add, it is not my responsibility, nor is it the responsibility of the church to encourage or discourage people to take a vaccine. I am not a medical doctor. I have not read all of the material. I am limited as you are, who don't have that background, to simply take the information we have, make the most discerning decisions that we can make out of what's available to us and our individual ability to understand that information. So it is not my responsibility to rail against the vaccine or to rail for it. Neither one of those. Each person is free to make their own informed decision. Some in this church are vaccinated and hold to the importance of it. Others are not vaccinated because they hold very strongly against it. Some are on the fence and are unsure or still trying to figure it out. People have different positions and they each have their own reasons and their own arguments. Again, my purpose this morning is simply to demonstrate in some minor fa fashion, believe me, you could go much more, uh, the breadth and complexity of the issues. My purpose is not to tell you whether or not to get vaccinated or to call vaccination the great evil of our day. Moreover, many of the concerns people have are not with the vaccine itself. There's much to be said on that specifically. The issue that most people have is with what is viewed as a forceful coercion of the people to take the vaccine. That's the real issue that people are struggling with uh, more often than not. So to introduce this, let me first just lay out what, what I would see as the broad lay of the land in terms of practical issues related to the vaccine. First of all, it's, there is the issue of risk, the issue of risk. And to say this, we have to, to note up front that tens of millions of people have had vaccine shots related to COVID-19. Some out of that have had one shot, some have had full vaccination, which is two shots, some have even had booster shots. But there's tens of millions of people who have had or taken the vaccine. Some of them have been helped by it, particularly those who are older in the population. Some have been helped by it who have preconditions, premorbid conditions and so forth. Others have suffered serious consequences from taking it and have had adverse reactions. Uh, there's both sides to the argument, but in fact, most people who have taken it have not had those reactions. They're real, they are to be considered, and I'll mention that, but most have not had them. 
And this brings up a host of questions then that we have to answer. Is it safe for younger people to take it? Is it safe for those who have already had COVID to take it? Is it safe for young women to take it? And will it affect their ability to get pregnant later? Or will it affect, uh, get, bring complications with the pregnancy and possibly defects and so forth? There is the risk factor some feel because the vaccine is still in a is in an experimental phase. Usually when a vaccine goes from concept to being introduced to the general public, there is a, a typical period of about 10 to 15 years that goes through various stages of trial. We are only a year or less, whatever the exact time is. Uh, for this vaccine. So many say, well, even the things that we don't see, uh, we can't really know for certain uh, that it's safe because there simply hasn't been enough time. And so some don't see the risk as worth it. Again, it doesn't mean that everybody will have a reaction. Some will be helped. Some will be hurt. Some are willing to take this risk. Some are not. So there's the issue of risk. Secondly, then, there is the issue of efficacy. What effect does it actually have? Does it actually help anyone? This addresses the question, do COVID-19 vaccines actually work and do they accomplish what they are purported to accomplish? That's the question. And here there can be confusion because the goalpost on what is actually meant to be achieved by taking the vaccine continually change. It's moved all of the time. Will it prevent it or will it lessen it? Those are two goalposts that have changed. Will it keep us from contracting it? Moved to, will it keep us from dying from it? Will it get rid of the mask mandate and, and make those unnecessary? And there, or will it just have no effect on the mask mandate? These are the kind of inconsistencies that we experience. There's also some that argue from evidence that vaccinated people can still transmit it to others. There's even some who argue that those who have been vaccinated are more likely to translate, transmit COVID to others. There's also the particular type of vaccine and the vaccine process, whether it can cause, some of you may have heard this, ADE, which is antibody depressant enhancement. And there are problems with this. Some argue then that if you take the vaccine and you get ADE, which is a potential from all vaccines, but in this one in particular, is that it has a very narrow way that it fights uh, the virus and the infection so that if you get it and then a variant comes along, your body is tricked into thinking that it already has antibodies and doesn't create them and therefore is more susceptible to the variant and makes each person dependent on a booster shot. There's other who argue that ADE, another possible side effect is, and this I quote, the antibodies that the vaccine generated actually help the virus infect greater numbers of cells than it would have on its own. That's one of the arguments. And then there's studies that are generally medical studies that say that the major, and there are many major medical sites that argue that COVID vaccines show no real threat of producing ADE. That it's not a threat. And that that's misinformation. And then you can go to other reputable doctors who say that it is a real issue and there is a high potential of ADE. Do you see my point? Information is all over the place. From credible sources and people who have the background. There's also the matter of those who argue that natural and herd immunity is the greatest deterrent against the virus and its variants. The natural deterrence against it. Which has validity as well. And then there's the general issue of messaging. What kind of messaging are we receiving? And this has to do in some ways with the goalpost being moved. For this, it makes it difficult to get accurate information and to be certain exactly 
what are the right numbers and what are the right policies to confront this? So, for example, at the very beginning of the outset, we heard that masks were ineffective. I was in a conversation uh, Jen's house and uh, Aaron's house with a doctor uh, last week who was, again, who was an established medical person who said with many other doctors that the masks are of no help and even uh, we've had public officials say that as well simply because of the size of the mask and the size of the molecules. There's no way that it'll stop it. Then we hear that the masks are essential to stop it and if you don't wear a mask, you're actually putting other people at risk in their lives. Then we heard for a long time that there would be no mandates for vaccine. A mandate for a vaccine is, is just not even on the table. And then we hear that vaccines are going to be mandated. And then we hear that children are least likely to contract it or to pass it on, transmit it to other people. And then we hear that children at very young ages need to be vaccinated to go into schools. The point is, is that the messaging is all over the place. And then there's just raw information. There are various sources of information. The CDC, for example, in our context, has been a trusted organization for many years overall. It's established a standard for COVID regulations and information. However, some argue that the CD, which has set the standard, has done so without allowing scientific counterpoints regardless of credibility. In other words, a monopoly, a mafia, if you will, of information. Some feel that as well. Incredible doctors and other streams of information or, or source of information are discredited or dismissed. Some are concerned about the absence of free debate and discussion. Generally, what we hear are talking points from one side and then talking points from another side, but no real interaction that enables one to see how arguments are defended and how arguments are challenged and how arguments are established and therefore finding, uh, determining the credibility of them. And so that makes it more difficult as well. There's also concern about the credibility of information related to statistics, and that has been an ongoing issue of what the actual numbers are in terms of those who have contracted it, those who have died from coronavirus, or those who have died with COVID-19, but have actually died from other causes. Those are questions. The way that they take these, uh, they gather this information is in and of itself sometimes uh, problematic for some. And then there is statistics related to death, contractions, uh, how it's contracted, and various treatments. There are many things that could be said, but one thing that's popular out there is whether the drug ivermectin is actually a benefit. This is just an example. It's a horse dewormer. It's been given in millions, maybe even more doses. It's been around for a long time. However, if you go to CDC, they have an article right up front that says, entitled this, Why You Should Not Use Ivermectin to Treat or Prevent COVID-19. And then you can go to the Journal of Therapeutics and other reputable places that conclude this after a study, and I quote, moderate certainty evidence finds that large reductions in COVID-19 deaths are possible using ivermectin. Using ivermectin early in the clinical course may reduce numbers progressing to severe disease and so on and so forth. My point is, is those are two contradictory sources of information. Those are two contradictory points and by credible sources. Who do you believe? And then there's the reality of money. There's the financial reality that's a part of all of this as well. 
The, reality, the fact is that we have amazing resources in our country, amazing resources. We have the amazing scientific resources, both in intellectual property and just simply money and facilities and those kind of things as well to create experiments, to develop vaccines and pharmaceuticals and other drugs from which we all benefit in a variety of ways. I think many of us would say we praise God we don't live in the medical world of the 1800s, for example, or the 13th. You certainly wouldn't want to go to the dentist back then or have surgery, right? So we're thankful for those things. We embrace them. We praise God for them. And it's because of the amazing resources that we have. And so we're, we're thankful for what the pharmaceutical industry has produced. But we're also mindful as biblically thinking Christians of the fact of money and power can influence information, Right, And so we also, there's another side that says that the pharmaceutical industry has a value of over $1.3 trillion. And it uses this vast wealth as well to influence politics and government policy. Over the last 20 years, the pharmaceutical industry and lobbying has spent over $4 billion dollars which one has reported is more than aerospace, defense, oil, gas, and industries combined. So that makes a difference. Therefore, some who hold to the credibility of certain other drug options out there uh, are also told that these are false hopes. And sometimes these drugs that are one uh, side presented as being a help and are on another side uh, presented as being an illusion and a false hope. Of course, we had a lot of press with hydrochloricine uh, that received both positive and negative responses. And there are other drugs as well, and ivermectin and so forth. But we're not unaware that sometimes it is possible that certain drugs that could be beneficial are not promoted because they are cheap and available, unlike certain pharmaceuticals. And there were a statistic I haven't... Uh, searched out the, the specifics of it, but it was at least one who said there were more billionaires created over the last last year than in previous years, many of them related to the medical community. And so by the mere fact that we have a biblical worldview and hopefully we have an accurate theology of sin and human depravity and understand that money and power have an amazing ability to corrupt and influence governments, peoples, families, and corporations and is going to have an influence on information that is shared, information that is suppressed, and so on and so forth. And so in, in the complexity of trying to find information, we realize that human sin is a key factor. And so we have to consider all of that as well. And then getting a little bit closer to home in some ways, there are biblical concerns that people have. For those who have benefited or believe they will benefit from the vaccine, it is merely an expression of God's common grace for which we are to be thankful. And for many, it is, it is, it is proven to be that. As with other medical projects and surgeries, there is always, however, the risk of potential problems. Considering the wise stewardship of their bodies in faith, some see the vaccine after reasoning it as a worthy risk. In other words, the risk for benefit is worthy of the price paid or the potential problems that could come from it. It's a cost-risk evaluation that we always have to make. 
The key issues of conscience for some, biblically, are really fall into two categories. One is the stewardship of the body, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, made very clear in the New Testament particularly. And so, therefore, it is seen that injecting anything that could be harmful into the body is, in fact, sin. And so, to take the vaccine and that moral reasoning for anyone to take it, not only for themselves or anyone else, is sin. It is sinning against your body. It's a sin that needs to be repented of in that position. Now, this is a right principle that we are to care for our bodies, although the specific risk for an individual are just that— It's an individual risk, and it changes based on many factors. Age, health, which vaccine, your relationship to COVID, and so on and so forth. In other words, it's not always simplistic. And the risk is acceptable to some, and the risk is not acceptable to others. And both have to make their decision. Again, I'm painting a picture. Another one, which is one of the larger ones that we hear from a biblical point of view, is the association of drugs with abortion. Namely, that fetal cell lines were used in the testing or development of certain vaccines. In fact, uh, all vaccines, uh, as I've understood from one article. Now, clearly, abortion is an abhorrent evil in our time that Christians should be clearly against, loving the people who are trapped in that, and that's why you have people who go out and give them the gospel and so forth. But the principle, the idea, the justification, the ideology, and the argument for abortion is to be absolutely opposed. It is murder, plain and simple. There is no question on that. Christians don't argue that point. When it comes to the issue, however, of not benefiting from any product associated in any way with fetal cell lines from electively aborted children, the issue becomes more complex, actually. And it's not so simplistic. In fact, there are five major cell lines from aborted tissues going back to 1972 and then other lines in between there that are used in scientific research across the board. The one that is the most common and often you, often you hear in the news is HEK293, which is most widely used in testing and in the scientific community. In fact, the distinction to be made in the use of aborted cell lines is that they are often used in the testing of many products not necessarily in the production of the product, but in the testing of the product and in the development of the product, as it is with many of the vaccines. The structure of the vaccine employed the use of these fetal cell lines while the production of the vaccine uh, does not. It was merely in the development or in the development stage. Above that, the connection with abortion goes far beyond the vaccine. It's in a variety of products. As a matter of fact... It's used in cosmetic lines, even artificial flavor enhancers. Just to give you an example, that same cell line was developed for food products and artificial sweeteners in Kraft Foods, Nestle, and Coca-Cola, and others. There was actually a lawsuit in 2012 related to this. So if you use creamer in your coffee from Coffee Mate, you have an associated with an aborted fetal cell line that was taken from an elective abortion, the liver. The point is, is it's much more complex than we imagine. If we want to say, if that argument is that we would stay away from any association whatsoever, any way, shape, or form, and I'll come back to this, 
from anything that has an, uh, was used uh, fetal cell lines in testing, then let me just give you a list. There's a list of over 20. I'm just going to give you a few of drugs that have an association, particularly of the HEK-293. I believe it was just that one. Uh, drugs that we take. Tylenol, acetaminophen, Advil, Motrin, Tums, Aleve, Naproxen, Pseudoephedrine and Sudafed and other cold medications, Guafensin, Mucinex, and so forth. All of those came, or products developed, that at some stage in their development, and again, the list goes on and on. I'm not going to sit here and list them all. Uh, that goes on and on, that used at some point in the line of development, fetal cell lines for testing. So if it's going to be, that is the argument, then it has to be understood that it is nearly impossible to disassociate completely and not have some proximate connection with products associated with an aborted fetal cell line. It's simply a given in the scientific community. It's, so that's an issue. And that brings up an ethical issue then, and it is an ethical issue, issue that can come under the title of proximity. And proximity can be proximity in relation to time and proximity in relation to the Christian and the directness of their use and the cause of whatever sinful cause that was behind the production of it. Those are two issues. One position says that, again, any association at all whatsoever is sin, period to take any product, to take a vaccine that required an aborted or where an aborted fetal cell line was used is sin, period, into discussion. There is no more discussion after that. Done. That's the ethical issue. That's the way I shared with you, a pastor who said it was sin, told his congregation. I read the sermon. Told the congregation it was sin. You need to repent if you've done that. Another point says, look, we live in a fallen world. It's a world under the influence of the evil one, and that it is impossible to disassociate ourselves completely from any association with or benefit from something that has sin in its production or development or availability. That's impossible. And that if we're going to carry that moral reasoning to its logical conclusion, then we have to expand it far beyond the use of a vaccine and COVID vaccine. We have to extend it to any association, that is, supporting any company that gives money to LGBTQ causes or Planned Parenthood. Money that is directly given to organizations that have a direct influence on abortions, on sex education and pornographic material all the way down to elementary school, to an attack on parental rights, and to an attack on marriage itself. And so if we're going to disassociate ourselves from any company or any financial stream that goes into the support of those, then we've got an issue. You have to now research every company which supports LGBTQ causes, and with that would support also Planned Parenthood, which, by the way, our taxes also support. And so do we stop paying taxes? And do we get a little bit closer to maybe the kind of conflict that the Pharisees tried to draw Jesus into when they say, is it right? Now, there was an issue of idolatry as well, of course, because of the image. But to say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar, who was by no means a righteous individual or a righteous government that feared God and desired to bring him glory. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. 
Let that government deal with that. You are to give your life to God. So these are just some of the issues. And in addition to all of this, as noted at the beginning, the issue for many is not the vaccine itself, but the being forced or coerced into taking it. And Christians differ on this point as well. Some say the issue of a vaccine mandate is worthy of going to the stake. I've been in all of these conversations. I would die for that. I would hold myself up with weapons and fight the government on that point. Some take that position. That over my dead body will I take a vaccine. And they mean that quite literally. And especially with their children who are now being required in California, at least it's out there, to have young children required to take the vaccine. And so some Christians take that position. Others say they will resist it as much as is reasonable or as they are able. But in the end, if it's a matter of losing their job or being separated from family or a similar cost, they will take it or allow it to be given to their children. Some hold that position. Others say they simply aren't bothered by the coercion and will follow whatever is recommended by the general medical establishment or government authorities or officials. Others take that position. And all of them reside in the same body of believers in a local community in the church. All of them. They're together. They're different positions. The purpose in these points, again, is not to argue for one or the other, although I certainly do have a position, but that's not the point of this message. It's simply to provide a snapshot to demonstrate the complexity of the issues and the various lines of arguments, circumstances, and information present for each individual to understand and make a personal decision in faith. Now, the second point, which I'm only going to introduce this morning. That's just to lay out and say, look, it's complex. Christians are on different sides of the issue. You know, very few anyway who take strong positions and dogmatic positions, even have the background to do so as dogmatically as they do. In other words, we need to allow people to have their position if it's not clearly in violation of Scripture. But now here's the second point, and this is going to be introduction to what we are going to get to more specifically next week. And that is the second point is this, is charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. Charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. And it is amazing, actually. I know that even sending out that article, and the whole point of that article, by the way, was to allow each Christian the ability to make an individual decision and let them follow their conscience. And to realize that in following their conscience, in terms of the inoculation, that article, that some will be inoculated out of faith in God, not fear, but out of faith. Jonathan Edwards did not live his life in fear. He made an informed decision of faith. It killed him. It was his decision. Others, the, argue, the article argued, actually from a letter of John Newton, that will not take it out of faith. It's each individual's right to, to do so. However, in sending out that article, I know that there were reactions, and I don't even know of all who, but even against that article who had problems with it, missing the entire point altogether. So how are we to handle these things? How are we to handle these things? Well, in light of these various issues and the strong stances that Christians are taking, it is important to be reminded of what is most important in light of the gospel. And again, to do that, we're going to look at Romans 14. We don't usually go so long, but I, this is such a big issue, and I do at least want to lay it out as best as I can, and even though in a very general sense. So Romans 14, let me just set the context generally this morning. 
for us. Paul is, of course, writing to the church of Rome. In the church of Rome, it consists of both Gentile and Jewish believers, Christians that come out of Judaism and Christians that come out of the Gentile world. And as such, they are bringing to their Christian experience different backgrounds, different convictions, and different levels of faith and different levels of maturity. They're all mixed together in the same body. Among the differences that Paul is going to highlight in Romans 14 are those who have convictions related to foods that can be eaten and those that cannot to certain days that should be honored as special and then those who say every day is alike, it doesn't matter. Those who, again, who are coming out of temple worship and Judaism and a long history governed by the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings and those who are coming out of pagan worship temple, temple worship and who have no association with that at all. And they're all together, and so they have different convictions. But what is important to note, and I'll repeat this later, is Paul is not dealing in Romans 14 with matters of salvation or how one is reconciled to God. He's not dealing with that. He's talking to Christians that he's recognizing as Christians. He's dealing with the matter of how we treat one another in each individual pursuit of living by faith to the glory of God. That's what he's addressing. Now, within these different backgrounds and convictions from the Jews and the Gentiles, to make matters more complicated, they didn't even fall neatly upon lines of just being a Jew or being a Gentile. You had Jews who were more liberated, who didn't hold on to days or foods, and then you had Gentiles who had come to a knowledge of the Old Testament and Judaism who had some convictions that tended towards a legalistic view that said they should be. You had that in the mix as well. So it could be complicated. And it's important, again, to emphasize this, that Paul is speaking to them both as Christians. He's not addressing, again, matters of salvation or even matters of doctrinal importance. Rather, he's addressing matters of conscience in both groups in how they live by faith. And more specifically, he's addressing this, how we love and relate to one another in light of different convictions and different uh, convictions of conscience and how we honor one another. This is the essential point to grasp as we come into it, that God's priorities are so often different than our priorities. God's priorities are so often different than our priorities. It's just a part of our fallenness and our fallen thinking. So often we are concerned in the name of glorifying him about matters that are secondary issues that aren't the matters that grab God's heart. They grab ours. We're very often concerned about things that are hills to die on for us, but God is concerned about this, how we love him and how we love one another as Christians. That is our testimony to the world. God is far less concerned about your position on vaccine and all of your arguments and your vehement political position than he is with how you hold that position in relation to another Christian for whom he died and the attitude you display in that. He's far more concerned with that, and that's the whole issue of Romans 14. Now, Paul acknowledges here, and right at the beginning, and again, we'll look at this in more detail next week, that there is weaker and stronger faith in this sense, weaker and stronger faith, not in what attaches us to Christ or doesn't. Again, these are both Christians, 
But in terms of understanding the implications of the gospel to life, there is weaker and stronger faith. There is a process of growth. Sanctification, in terms of our experience of it working out in our life, is progressive. It's completed in one sense because we are saints in Christ. It will be perfect in the future. Right now, it's a process of growing to be like what we are in Christ and faith grows and so he acknowledges there is weaker faith and there is stronger faith he says right at the beginning except the one who is weak in faith he says in verse 2 he who is weak eats vegetables only there is a certain weakness to that but again Paul isn't talking about whether that's a legitimate position or not he bypasses that altogether essentially he's not concerned with it Both are equally wrong in the ones that he addresses, even though there is stronger and weaker faith in terms of understanding the implications of the gospel. But from both groups, there are those who are wrong and equally guilty of living, not living out the implications of the gospel in terms of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and the weightier matter of love. As a matter of fact, he had said just previous to this in chapter 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, here's the interesting thing. And again, put this into, you can see how this transfers over. Both of these groups that he's addressing think that they are acting out of faith in God and God is pleased with them. Both are fully convinced about that. Absolutely, they will have the list of arguments of why it is so and why their conscience being informed the way that it is is the right way to have the conscience informed. Both of them have their reasons, they both have their arguments, they both have their positions and no doubt many of them have their text as well in terms of what was available to them at that time. But in fact, with all of that, the issue is is that Paul has to instruct them and us by saying, but you're really not pleasing God in the way you're treating one another. And again, this is a common tendency of our fallenness. We place the wrong emphasis on what honors God to focus on personal convictions, externals, or other issues and miss God's heart. Remember his word to the Pharisees. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, what he is not saying here is that we should not have positions, that we should not argue those positions, that we should not have clear reasons that we're ready to defend for those positions and for doctrine. What he is saying is those are not the gospel and how we treat one another in defending those positions is of paramount importance to God, not the position itself. That's that's huge to grasp. Because we feel so often so secure and and we just, if we're honest, a lot of times we can just feel so self-righteous that we have defended our position and we're faithful to the truth when in doing so we have treated a brother with contempt or a sister with contempt. Now I will repeat this question next week but I want to at least throw it out there uh, now uh, just as a big picture and again we're going to be in the text next week. Uh, completely but is this if we were to compare in general our zeal for various positions that we find ourselves in our heart holding contempt for another brother and sister on who is another Christian 
if we were to compare our zeal for whatever position we're arguing compared to our zeal to follow the commandment to love that brother or sister and serve them, how would that match up? How would that match up? Do I wake up in the night over the latest political argument for a vaccine or article I read? Or do I wake up in the middle of the night over concern for a suffering brethren and how I might love them and how I might care for them? So those are, and that's a challenging question to me as well. I don't, I don't put myself above that by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but those are the kind of questions that we have to ask ourselves. What grabs our affections? And what should grab our affections? As we come to the Lord's table this morning and as we prepare to look at this again more next week, let's remember that we have each of us who knew Christ been baptized into the body of Christ. We together as Christians have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one spirit, and we have one baptism. And the testimony of the church to the world and grounded on the truth grounded on the, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, grounded in the testimony of the gospel, is this, how we treat one another. That is the testimony that Christ himself has laid out as the great witness to the world of the reality of his life in us. And so that's what I'm encouraging us and want to implore all of us to remember. It's, it's just amazing some of the things that we've seen by leaders now outside of this and, and I'm going to wrap this up but with, with these issues of and again we could add in critical race theory and social justice I heard a, a leader basically call everybody who opposed him fools that he doesn't have time for publicly at a conference I mean the level of arrogance behind that is to me honestly mind boggling but it's there and unfortunately that's, that's the church the world is looking at that's the church the, Lord, the world is watching. And so we want to escape that. And again, we're not talking about not having a position. We're not talking about not arguing that position. We're talking about the way that we do it and how we treat one another. So as we come to the table, let's, let's even just take some time to examine our own hearts. Examine our own hearts. If you have, see in your heart a, a tendency to hold another brother or sister in contempt over various positions, if there are any relational issues you know that come out of that, if there's any distortion of priorities in terms of our spiritual priorities, whatever it is, or any other variety of issue, take some time as we come to the table to remember that we are redeemed in Christ, that we belong to the Lord, which Paul will say, none of us lives to ourselves. We live to the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord, that he could be Lord of the For this reason, he died and rose again, that he could be Lord of both the living and the dead. And so let's take some time as we come to the table to think in our own life whether it might be sin that needs to be confessed, but at the same time also to remember and thank God for his joy, his joy and his grace and his mercy that he shows to us and that we would employ him to help us to extend that to one another. So take some moment, moment I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, you can take a few moments as the men pass out the elements and then we'll take the table together. Father, we thank you that we stand in Christ. We stand in Christ whole. We stand in Christ complete. We stand in Christ forgiven. We stand in Christ new creatures and new crea creations. We stand in Christ as sons and daughters. There is nothing to add to what you have done to us for us.
And we thank you for that mercy and that grace. Lord, may you instill in us all of the full implications of it, both in our own walk with you and in our walk with one another, this side of heaven. We thank you for the symbols that you've given to us in the Lord's table that remind us of our unity, remind us of our common possession of the Spirit, remind us of our common salvation, remind us of the things that we hold most dear, the things that we lock arm in arm with and are ready to die for together. Lord, would you remind us of those things as well and, and in all of this instill in us a greater care and compassion for one another, bearing with one another. For as you said to the Colossians, love is the perfect bond of unity. And it's that we ask you to produce in us through Christ. And it's to this end I pray, amen. So pray in the meanwhile.